may be seated. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. What a day this is. Amen? What a day this is that God would bring us to the culmination of all of the hard work, all of the preparation, all of the prayers, all of the tears, all of the energy for our pastor back at the Bridge Bible Fellowship. This has been over 15 years in the making. Uh, this is amazing. He texted me this morning and just said, praise the Lord, praying for you, praying for your church body. And he said something that I've had four other really good friends text me, which is, don't look to today, look to the finish line. And every one of them I've said, yeah, that's what we're preaching on today. We're looking to the finish line. I remember I was at a wedding one day where um, the, the bride had her maid of honor give a toast. And the toast was very simply, this day is amazing, a culmination of so much hard work and and desiring to be here on this day, and praise the Lord, and you're going to have a great honeymoon period, and hopefully it'll never end. But don't just look to today. Look to the lifetime, to the commitment that you've made. Look to that end when you see Christ face to face. That is the goal of your marriage today. Look to the end. Don't be so nearsighted and short-sighted that you get caught up in the emotions and just look 24 hours in advance. Have a steadfastness of heart. Look to your commitment. Look to the perseverance that you're going to need. And look to that day that you see Christ face to face. This has been an amazing journey to get here. We've talked a lot in our core group about working under the power of God and God alone. We talked a lot about Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and making sure that even when we say, like Moses said, ah, you can't use me. Remember, Moses said, I am slow of speech and I stutter. I'm difficult of, of speech. It just isn't natural to me. Help me. I'm not the right guy. In our culture today, you would think God would say, you're okay, Moses. You're awesome. You'll do it. You're, I'm rooting for you. But God doesn't throw the self-esteem card into the mix. He says, you're right, you stutter, you can't do this, and I made you that way. You're not awesome, Moses, I am, and I will work through you. And we trust in the fact that God's going to work through us, our strengths and our weaknesses alike. God will work. We talked a lot about having thick skin in a smaller group. We offend each other more readily, more quickly, more often than we care to admit. We want to have thick skin but we want to have a tender heart. We've talked a lot about prayer. We've talked a lot about making sure that we persevere to the end. And all of that culmination has come to today. If I had one prayer over kind of a banner that would fly over my life, it would be what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, but that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to, to testify solemnly to the gospel of the grace of God. We have one mission, and the mission isn't to get to today. 
that seemed like a mission, and it was definitely a marker in the road, but the mission is to testify solemnly to the grace of God and to finish the course that he has given to us and to be able to say with Paul, I have finished my course. I have fought the good fight. I've run my race to its completion, and I have kept the faith. So this morning, I want to look to the last day. I don't want to just look to this day. I want to look to the last day. I don't want to just look here and now. I want to look then and future. I want to be able to say with Jonathan Edwards as he prayed, God, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I want to see with an eternal perspective that's not just living for the moment, but living for the future. And that day when we hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or with Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions. Resolution number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Let's think about it being the last hour of our lives. What would we do if we knew we only had an hour left to live? How fervently would you share the gospel with the family members around you that don't know? How fervently would you spend that time with them, making sure they knew of Christ? Jonathan Edwards, uh, resolution number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. I want to look to that last day and draw a line backwards and start living that way today and make sure that we live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called so that in light of that last day, we would live every second of our lives with fervency with vigor. Resolution number 19, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Or resolution number 50, resolved I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. Or to pray with Moses, God, teach us to number our days so that we would be able to present before you a heart of wisdom. I want to have a heart filled with wisdom, not just temporarily looking at circumstances and situations and running on the high of the highs and being stuck and depressed in the lows. The reality is that before we know it, we, we know that the scriptures speak of life being a vapor, right? Right? Before we know it, we will be there. Before we know it, we will be standing before the judge of the universe. And it might come quickly for some. It might be longer for others. But for all of us, we are like the grass of the field that is there one day and is burnt the next. It's gone, just like a dandelion blown in the wind. Gone. And that day, that moment, we will stand before the judge and we will hear him speak. We know that he will speak. We know that scripture says that he will say to those that he has redeemed and sanctified, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. We know that he will say that. Well, what will it be like to enter into heaven and to hear him say those words? What will it be like? We're going to hear the singing of angels, we know that the angels are singing right now, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. They're singing that right now, and we will, when we step into eternity, we'll hear that song and we'll join in. We know that the elders are singing right now as they bow down before the throne, and we know we're going to jump right in with them and praise the Lord. 
and we know that we will hear the Lord speak. What will he say to us? What will he say to us individually? What will he say to me as a parent? What will he say about the way that I fathered my kids and parented them? Will it be with wisdom that I have instilled in them and and just dive every day into their heart to make sure that I'm not just working on behavior modification, but genuinely shepherding their hearts? What will I hear the Lord say about the way that I parented? What will I hear the Lord say about the way that I loved my wife? What will he say to you? What will he say to you about how you honored your father and mother? How you love the household of God? What will he say? And what will he say about our church? What will he say about Christ Bible Church? You know that Christ speaks to churches, right? Revelation chapter 2 through 3, we have an entire record of Jesus speaking to churches. And he's commending some of them. And he's judging most of them. He says to some, I know your deeds, I know your work, I know your toil and your labor. I know how well you have fought the fight. Continue, excel, don't give up. For there is a crown waiting for you for those who overcome. For some, he says, I am detestable of who you are. I cannot stand you and I will spit you out. What will he say about Christ's Bible church? There are many things that I hope the Lord will say about our church. If I can just sum them up in these 10 verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think there's a huge commendation about this church in Thessalonica. I think Paul loves this church, and I think that he has a genuine respect for who they are and for what God has done in their midst. And if I could sum it up into just five, five points, five things that I desire the Lord to, hear, to say to us. I want to hear him say these things on the last day. And I want to do this and live these out by the grace of God alone. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Oh, to be that church that God would be able to say to us through human agents, We give thanks to to you all the time, to God all the time for you. Praise God for what he's doing in your midst. He's doing an amazing work through all of you, not just some of you, not just an elite group, but to all of you. And as we make mention, Paul says, we are giving thanks. And this is what he is thankful for. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father. The first thing that I want to hear the Lord say on that last day, that he would commend us for as Christ Bible Church, would be that we worked and we labored to the point of exhaustion. That we worked and labored to the point of exhaustion. I take that from verse 3 that Paul is saying he is constantly bearing in mind these three things, that the Thessalonian church is working, their work of faith. That word work just looks to the end result, the actual work that they accomplished. They weren't just aimlessly working and and not knowing what they were doing. They had a goal, they had a target, and they fought for that target. If we just aimlessly think, oh, 
we just want to serve the Lord. We just want to glorify the Lord. But we don't put anything tangible, concrete, any goals. We don't set for ourselves goals and desires that we want to be accomplished that are utterly and thoroughly biblical, then we're just going to be aimlessly walking around. And as people say, how are you guys doing as a church? Well, uh, we're meeting. That's all we'll be able to say. We're meeting. But if we have concrete goals that we work for and we work in faith for those goals, that people would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, that those who know Christ as Lord and Savior would be sanctified through the Word of God. There will come days that we will have difficult decisions to make, and I pray that we would make those decisions by the power of the Spirit according to His Word. At the Bridge Bible Fellowship, we had several cases where we had to practice church discipline. My prayer is that as a church right now, we would develop in our heart a knowledge and an understanding that if God would choose for us to have to go down that route. We would live according to every single word that he has written. And we would make our choices and decisions by God's word alone. That it would be our sole authority and nothing else. We need goals. We need to set tangible, concrete, practical, attainable, measurable goals. And the Thessalonians did that. And therefore their work, their whole body of work, their goals that they accomplished of faith, Paul is thankful for. They also labored. That word labor in the Greek just means toiling to the point of exhaustion. Working so hard, you are so worn out that it's, you just go home and you fall on your bed and you pass out. A pure exhaustion. All of the Thessalonians were working that way because it says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And I praise the Lord already for what he's doing in CBC that all of you are working hard I've been able to commend at this conference that we were at this last week, many people were asking, how's the church going? What's going on? I said, everybody's working. There's not one pew sitter, one pew warmer. Everybody has a job. Even Damien. Damien came to Christ and he's doing lights. Praise the Lord, jumping in and serving. God is just doing a miraculous work in and through you as you serve and say, hey, can I help out with more? Can I help out with more? What else can I do? And I pray that all of this work and all of this toil and all of this striving together would be for the purpose of sharing the gospel with those who don't know and sanctifying those who do. These Thessalonian believers worked hard, labored to the point of exhaustion, but they did this not because they were trying to earn God's favor. They did this because they already had his favor. You see, it was a work of faith. It wasn't a work of trying to earn God's favor, to earn salvation, to have him notice us so that he would look at us with favor. No, we work because we already have God's favor. We don't work to earn anything. We work because we have been loved by the God of the universe. That's why we work. And we know that as we work, our work, just like Jesus said in John, our work is to do the will of the one who sent him. And our work is to do the will of the Father as well. And our work is our food. It is our sustenance. As we obey, we are energized to do more work. So though we work to the point of exhaustion, we work under the power of God who works mightily in us. This church was in God, Paul said in verse 1. The church of the Thessalonians in God. You know why they're working? They're working because at one point in time they were outside of God. 
They were under the wrath of God, and now they are in God and saved by Christ and covered by His blood. Such an amazing thing that grace is that it would propel us and motivate us to work hard. And God will sustain us in our work. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says something similar about himself. You know it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. How's that for a goal? That's my goal. And how do we do this? Verse 29, for this purpose... I also labor, there it is again, labor to the point of exhaustion, working so hard that you're just about to pass out. I strive, the word in the Greek, agonizomai, I agonize. This is painful. I agonize, but I don't do it on my own strength. I do it according to his power, which mightily works within me. We work, we work hard. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 Paul says that we should be like farmers who work so hard, get up early, go to bed late. And he says only those that work hard get their share of the crops. If we just say, hey, let's throw a couple seeds out there and let's just hope that rain comes, we're going to go to bed. We're not going to water anything. We're not going to plow anything. We're just going to throw some seed out there and see what happens. If that's what happens, Paul says that farmer won't get any crops. But if we go, if we till the soil if we put the, the sprinklers in the right uh, format and get ready to go, and then we put the seed out, and we put more seed out, and we put more seed out, and we put more seed out, and we're constantly throwing seed into the ground, constantly tilling the ground, all through the work of the Spirit, all through the power of Christ, then that farmer will receive his share of the crops. The bottom line is, I do not want to waltz my way into heaven and with a smile on my face say, I'm here. I want to be so exhausted when that last day comes, so weary from years, Lord willing, years and years and years of ministering the gospel. I want to be so tired that I fall over the finish line into eternity, and the only way that I'm able to cross over is Christ picks me up in his arms and pulls me across. That's the way I want to end the race. I don't want to just hop, skip, and a jump through. What's the work that we have to do? Is there a lot of work to do? There are over 200 million non-churched people in America, making America one of the four largest unchurched nations in the world, comparable to a mission field like India. There is a huge work to do sharing the gospel with souls that at this moment are on their way to hell. Yeah, but we have enough churches, right? We don't need any more churches to do that. Each year, about 3,500 churches close their doors permanently. And church plants are not happening as fast so that it would be one-to-one. -one. We, Lord willing, will be a church that would plant churches, that would plant churches so that that rate would go down of churches closing their doors and the rate of churches opening their doors would go up to reach the lost and to sanctify the saved. Today, of the approximately 350,000 churches in America, four out of five are either plateaued or declining. They've hit a wall. They've grown comfortable. Paul wouldn't be writing these commendations to them because they've hit a wall and they're slowing down. 
They've plateaued. But there was one American denomination that recently found that 80% of its converts in its denomination came to Christ in churches that were less than two years old. Over 80% of the converts that came to Christ in the denomination came to Christ through church plants that were less than two years old. We have a work to do, and the, the pump has been primed to do it. We are ready to go. And the mission field is everywhere. We're on it. We're standing on it. And we send out our fellow students to heritage and our fellow teachers to heritage to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that are here. The mission field is around us in the neighborhoods and the communities. The mission field is in our neighborhoods, in our communities. The mission field is all over. And by God's grace, the pump is ready. It's primed and we're ready to sow the seed and preach the gospel till our dying day. They labored their labor was a labor of love. They were never looking, going, I can't believe it. Doggone it, I got to work again. They loved the labor that they got, they got to do, again, motivated by grace. It reminds me of Acts chapter 20, verse 31, when Paul is in Ephesus. He says that, you, you remember that I was there for three years admonishing and teaching with tears. I wasn't just standing there with my finger in your face saying, come on, get this together and out of there. He was pleading and begging and preaching and with tears. He loved that church. You might say, well, how do we strain? How do we work to the point of exhaustion? How do we labor and work without losing hope? There are going to be so many days where it just seems like nothing's happening. We come to church and there's three of us. What's happening? There are going to be days when we talk, we share the gospel with 15 people and this has been an amazing day and none of them, none of them even want to hear it. They just all reject it. How do we keep on working when we are struggling with no results, when we're struggling with no fruit, seemingly no fruit? That would be number two. I pray that the Lord on the last day would say to us, you rested in God's sovereignty and his promise to build his church. I hope and pray that God would look upon us and just as he wrote to the churches in Revelation, I pray that he would say something with a commendation to the fact that we rested in his sovereignty. We rested in his promise to build his church we are not alone in doing this. In fact, if we worked with our own energy and our own strength, we would work in vain. Nothing would happen. But since God is working through us, in us, we know that the work is not in vain. That's how we have hope. That's how we keep going. When all around us seems like it's failing and nothing is working, we know God is still on his throne and God is still working. That's why Paul writes that we have a work of faith, the Thessalonians have a work of faith, the labor of love, and a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God uh, and the Father, in presence of the Father, we know that we have a hope that will not be disappointed because we know that God's the one that is going to build his church. And so we rest in that fact. We rest in the fact that we work and we toil and we labor and we strive and we agonize. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, I worked harder than all the rest, but not according to the power that works within me. I worked harder than anyone around me, but I did it all through the power of Christ. Listen to one of the promises that 
God has given to us in his word. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, Paul says, Christ shall confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. In other words, if God calls you into the fellowship of his Son, he will give you endurance to the end. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Romans 8.30, we love it. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he has justified, he has glorified. It's as good as done. God will get us there, and God will get his chosen there. God will do that work through us. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is a vital passage. It is the Magna Carta, if you will, of the church. It is our constitution And it is the promise that we lean on and we go to whenever we feel that we are failing. If it seems like the work has been done in vain, if it seems like there's no fruit, if it seems like this is pointless, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, this is Christ speaking, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church. Who's speaking? I. This is the same Christ who is in Revelation chapter 5, who is the lamb-like lion and the lion-like lamb who is on the throne. And everybody's worshiping, worshiping him saying, blessed are you. You are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy because of what you have done. And he says, with just a word, I will vanquish my enemies. The God that Peter, James, and John saw transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus pulled back his humanity so that they could see and they were were absolutely in awe. The God that revealed his glory to Moses but couldn't even reveal all of it to Moses and had to hide him in a rock or else he would have died. That's the God who says, I will build my church. He's all-powerful. He is infinitely worthy, and he has promised to you and to me this morning. He will build his church. He's going to do it. Will build. He will build. How does he build? Does he build more church buildings? Is the church a building? No, it's not. It's people. And God builds his church through the gathering together of people in the most insane ways. We're going to look at it next week as we start the book of Philippians. Acts chapter 16, three individuals that you would never think would ever have any commonality together come together by God's grace. And they love each other and they're in Christ, absolutely in love with each other, fellowshipping in the spirit. God brought them together, all three in totally different ways, from totally different circumstances and totally different settings. God says, I'm going to build it. I'm going to call people. I'm just going to keep calling them. I'm going to grip Lydia's heart. I'm going to grip the slave girl's heart. I'm going to grip the jailer's heart. All through Paul, preaching the word of God. I'm going to do it. And he does it. He says, I'm going to build my church. I will build, it's a promise, and he will build his church. Not our church, not my church, not your church. His church. He owns it. This is God's church, so he owns it, he controls it, he's the king over his church. We do what he tells us to do. This is his church. I love how he says it in Acts chapter 18, 9 through 11. Paul says this. He's in Corinth, he's trying to share the gospel, everybody's refusing, nobody's believing, they want to kick him out. They absolutely hate him. 
And he turns to his companions and he says, lost cause. Let's get out of here. Lost cause. Pointless. We're done. And Jesus speaks and says, do not be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking. Do not be silent because I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you because I have many people in this city. God has many people in Heritage Christian Schools. God has many people in the Northridge area. God has called people. We don't know who they are, but God has promised, I have people in that city. I have people yet to hear the gospel and be saved. I have people. So Paul, keep on preaching in Corinth. Even though everybody's refusing you, keep on preaching. I've got people there, and they will come. They will come. John chapter 10, verse 16, you know it. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. God has people in this fold that are not here, that are outside of here, that he will use us to get to them and to preach the gospel to them. He will build his church. You know, Jesus never promised that he would build his Christian college or build his social services or build his parachurch. He promised, I will build my church. And guess what? We are a church in the church, and that promise works for us, fits for us. It goes to us. It's here, and we get to bank on it. So give your life to sowing the seeds so that you are exhausted at the end of the day, but never do it on your own strength. Always do it resting in the, in the promise and the power of Christ that he's promised, I will build my church. He's going to do it. Number three, I pray that Christ would commend us on the last day for growing in Christ-likeness because our sole authority was the word of God. Our sole authority is the word of God. If you go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I think it's amazing how many different authorities there are that the church goes to nowadays. And yet Paul writes to the Thessalonians, I know, verse 4, brethren, beloved by God, that he called you, his choice of you, so you can rest in his sovereign purpose for you. And I also know our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Our gospel didn't come to you just in word. As we work, I would pray that our sole authority would be God's word, not our opinions. God's spirit working through his word, not our desires, our goals, our opinions. This church in Thessalonica, if you see verse 6, became imitators. The word there in the Greek is mimete, means uh, mimic, right? It's where we get our word for mimic. They mimicked Paul who mimicked Christ. They just began looking like Christ in everything they did, how they, how they felt, how they spoke, how they acted. They looked like Christ. And how did they get to looking like Christ? Because they received the word, verse 6. They received the word. And it wasn't just opinions. It wasn't just man's reason or man's authority. It was the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 5. You didn't just receive our words, but you received it in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction you became imitators because of receiving that word. It worked through you. 
Mark Dever says it this way, friends, there is not a new and trendy way to convert our friends or to be sanctified ourselves other than the preaching of God's word. If we turn to anything else to be sanctified or we turn to anything else to preach the gospel to save souls, we turn to any other reason or any other mechanism, we are turning to folly. John chapter 17, 17, we are sanctified in the truth. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. My word is truth. Psalm 119, we read it already this morning in the church family Bible hour, that God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We become conformed into the likeness of Christ through this book. That's why we get together. That's why we hang out at church. That's why we fellowship together so that as we speak the word of God to each other, we become greater imitators of Christ. And then what happens? Verse 7, we become examples to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, in the north and in the south. We start going into our jobs. We start going into other places, and we become examples to other believers as well as to the lost. The Thessalonians specifically were an example to other believers, a model church for giving, for financial stewardship. Later on in this book, Paul commends them for their giving and for their love for the Lord and that they would give to his cause. But I pray that we would work to the point of exhaustion, that we would work not in our own strength, but in the power of Jesus Christ. And I pray, I pray, I pray that as we do all of these different works that God has given us to do, we would do so with the authority of God's word and thereby become conformed to the image of Christ, that we'd start looking like Jesus. That's the end of all things, right? That's the end. That's the promise that we have in Romans 8, 28 and 29, that he who began that good work finishes it. And then Romans 8, 28, he says, look, this is the promise. Anyone who loves me, anyone who loves me, I've called and I will turn them from sin into the image of Christ. I will make them look like Christ because the one whom he's called, he will conform to the image of his son. That's my prayer for our church. That's my prayer for us as we gather together. But it doesn't just end in these walls. This is what I love about the way that church works in the New Testament. They gather together. The word of Christ dwells richly in them, and then they go. We gather together to be equipped to glorify the Lord in our own midst, and then we scatter to evangelize. And that's exactly what the church in Thessalonica did Number four, I pray that the Lord would commend us as he did this church for reverberating the gospel everywhere. I use that word reverberating because that's the word that's used in verse eight. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth. It's echoing around you. It's reverberating. Uh, Just like if you were to yell in, in the Grand Canyon, you would hear it echoing off of the walls of the canyon so too these believers got together and when they got together, the word of God reverberated in their midst. They spoke to one another and it just started echoing in their midst. And as it echoed in their midst, it it conformed them into the likeness and image of Christ. And then they went out and it echoed in their midst again out in a lost and dying world so that others heard. Look at that, verse eight. The word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, he already mentioned those two places, the north and the south, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Everywhere you go, the word sounds forth. We must reverberate the gospel outside these walls or else we will die. 
We will die. J. Oswald Sanders writes, Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. If you're not obeying the king of the church who says, Go, therefore, and make disciples, then he's going to take that lamp out of the lampstand and remove, shut the doors on your church. We must be spiritually contagious in this church and encourage each other and let the word reverberate in our midst, but we must be spiritually contagious outside these walls as well. We've been given a commission from the King of Kings. Let's live it out together. So I pray that we would work and work and work and labor and toil to the point of exhaustion. I pray that we would do so in the power of Jesus Christ and not on our own strength. I pray that we'd rest in the promise that he will build his church. I pray that we would grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ because our sole authority is the word of God. And I pray that we would reverberate the gospel everywhere we go. Lastly, number five, I pray that we would cherish Christ above all things and long for his return. I pray that on that last day, Christ would commend us for cherishing him above everything this world has to offer. And that we would have been those in the church that would have been longing for his return. Verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. When the gospel takes root in your soul, it changes you from the inside out. And it changed the Thessalonians. They turned to God. That's repentance. They turned to God from idols. They turned from the idols that they found satisfaction in. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's power. Whatever it is, they turned from idolatry. They turned to the living and true God. Not a dead and false God, but a living and true God. And they turned to, my Bible says, serve. But the word is a verb form of that word doulos. And what does doulos mean? Slave. They turned to be slaves of the master. And as they turned from the idols that, by the way, never fully satisfy, idols always demand that you sacrifice everything for them. Jesus is the one treasure that said, I'll sacrifice everything for you. They go and they are slaves of the Most High God, but it doesn't just end there. Verse 10, and they waited. They waited for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, Paul writes, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to everyone who has longed for his appearing. Everyone who has that yearning in their hearts for him to come. And the only ones that are going to yearn for him to come are those that know that when he comes, he will not judge them, but they are held under the blood of Christ, free, saved, set apart. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, how I want to long for Jesus to come every day. There are days I don't. There are days I don't. 
My prayer is that Christ Bible Church would be known in this community, in this valley, and across the world as a church that loves Christ above all things. Any idols that we have, we crush them, we do away with them, and we love Christ more than anything this world has to offer. We're satisfied only by Him, and that's why we can't wait for Him to come back, because then our satisfaction will become sight. No longer faith, but sight. How blessed are those who love and have not yet seen Him, Peter writes. I desire for my life to adorn the gospel to make Jesus look big, to make his grace look massive, transforming. I pray that we would do that together. What are we longing for? What's our hope? One writer said, hope without a time of fulfillment is a delusion. Hope without a time of fulfillment is a delusion. Are we delusional people? Are we hoping for something that we don't know if it's going to come to pass? We don't know if it's going to happen. Are we delusional? Are we gambling? Not at all. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Are we a delusional people? Not at all. That is the end of the matter. That is the beginning of the rest of eternity for us as believers. Right now, we struggle as a church, burning up wood, hay, and stubble. Man, we struggle just to even love Christ the way he's supposed to be loved. We struggle to do the works of of Jesus Christ that he has given for us to do in obedience, simple obedience. We disobey constantly, and we're struggling. And our church does not look like this right now. Our church is not adorned. It is not ready as a bride for her husband. But God has promised, I will build my church. And when he builds his church, there is a day coming that we hope and long for. When this will take place when we will be adorned, ready to see the bridegroom. You notice I stopped in verse 7, but there is a remainder of this verse. In verse 8, but, this isn't the end for everybody. For the cowardly and the unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be 
in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, there is a day coming when we will no longer have the opportunity to share the gospel. There's a day coming when we no longer have the opportunity to witness the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ to those around us who are on their way to hell. Let us work, let us toil, let us rest in the sovereignty of God and work as much as we can in His promises. Let's not grow weary in doing it. Let's grow more Christ-like as we do it. Let us look and wait and long for his return. And until he comes, let us be faithful to live out the great commission and share the gospel with those around us. For there is coming a day when that will no longer be a possibility. I want to close just in 2 Peter chapter 3 by reading the words that Peter writes He says, therefore, verse 14, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Since you look for these things, be diligent. Verse 15, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things so hard to understand which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. But you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. And this is the prayer that I would have for Christ Bible Church today. But grow in the grace of in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because to him and him alone be the glory both now and to that final day of eternity. Amen. Father, we look to that day. We rest in the fact that there is a coming day when we will see you face to face, and while that gives us reason to rest and to praise, that gives us reason to fear and to tremble because there is a coming final day of judgment in which forever souls will have no chance of being saved. God, I praise you for this day that is such a monumental culmination of so much work, but I pray that the work would just start today, that this would only be the beginning, though it could be seen as the finish of so much work, that this would just be seen as the beginning of the work that you have for Christ Bible Church to do in Northridge, in the San Fernando Valley, and across the world. God, I pray that we would treasure you and turn away from idols, become your slaves, and that you would truly be above anything in this world, everything to us. You are our cornerstone. You are our foundation. You are our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and our treasure. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.